All right, you can open up to James chapter 1 this morning. Over the next 35 minutes or so, you and I are going to participate in a vital activity together. It may seem like I'm doing most of the work, but we have an equal part to play in this this morning. Over and over again, the Bible places the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word at the heart of Christian growth. I mean, this is important. What we're doing this morning is important. It's vital for you and for me to grow as believers. Last week, we began talking about this from James 1, and I hope that some of you took the encouragements that I gave at the end and prayed in advance for for my study of the word, for the preaching of the word, and, and prepared your own hearts to listen to the scriptures this morning. Maybe you read the passage um, and interacted with it a little bit before, before you came this morning. And as important as this is, what we're going to do over the next 35 minutes, in many ways it's the highlight of our week as believers as we gather together and sing and sit under the word. It's important But what we're doing this morning is insufficient. It's not everything that needs to be done. You can be the world's best listener of sermons, the best sermon taster that there is, and you can be hopelessly deceived about your spiritual state. And so can I. I read a a section from Pastor Chuck Swindoll this week, and he paints the picture of how important this is, but insufficient, what we're doing this morning is. He paints it this way. He says to imagine that you are an executive assistant at a large company and that your boss has to travel overseas and it's going to be a long trip and he's going to be gone for several months. And he says to you, look, I'm going to be gone and I'm going to send you an email every Monday morning. And that email is going to lay out very clearly the instructions for the company and for the main office here down to the littlest details. And I'm going to give you everything that needs to be done in the company and at the home office while I'm gone each and every week. All right. So he leaves, and after several months, the boss returns to the main office, and he finds everything is out of control. Trash hasn't been emptied. Files are scattered all over the place. And as he walks in, almost every employee is either on Facebook or playing video games. Maybe it's that way at your company now. But he calls you in, and here's how the conversation goes. Look at this place. Didn't you get any of my emails? And you respond, emails. Oh, yeah, sure. I got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have had email study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. 
one or two memorized an entire email or two. Great stuff in those emails. And the boss responds, okay, you got my emails, you studied them and meditated on them, you discussed them and you memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do, you respond, we didn't do anything about them. And that is precisely why hearing the word of God week in and week out is important, but insufficient. And that's what we're going to look at this morning from James chapter 1. Last week we began studying this section, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And James here is dealing with our relationship as believers with the word of God. And so I told you, we're going to look at two attitudes that are required to approach God's word with wisdom. Two attitudes that are required to approach God's word with wisdom. Required to approach God's word with wisdom. The first one of those we looked at last week, I'm going to say it this way. We need to be ready to receive. Ready to receive. That's the first attitude. We spent all morning last week in verses 19 through 21. So let me read them to you again and remind you of, of what we looked at. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. As believers, the disposition that is described in verse 19 flows from our new life in Christ. If you look back to verse 18, look what James says there. Of his, God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are the first fruits. We let everyone know that all of creation will one day be redeemed. And we let them know that by the way the word works in our lives and by the new lives that we demonstrate. And one of the aspects of that new life that we demonstrate is in verse 19. The qualities of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, those qualities are important for us as we interact with one another, as we relate to other people in the church, certainly, but even in all of life. But those qualities also describe how we approach the scriptures. We have to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger as we come to God's word. And there's no better word to describe or sort of summarize that disposition than the word that's used in verse 21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. When we come to God's word, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't think too highly of our opinions or of our knowledge. But what we do is we come and we say, I need this word from God. I need instruction from him. And so we come and we're quick to hear. We come ready to receive. But being ready to receive is only the first attitude. That's only the first part of this approach to God's word. If you are ready to receive, if you come and have read the scripture before you come on Sunday, 
And you have even prayed for the preaching of the word. And you sit there and you take notes and you listen intently. But you never put on the second attitude that James describes here. James says that you have been deceived about your spiritual state. The second attitude in verses 22 to 27 has to be paired with the first one. So we're ready to receive, and then secondly, we are eager to act. We're eager to act. Verse 22 frames this whole section up for us. Two categories of people. You can be one or the other of these two categories of people. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You can be a doer of the word or you can be one who only hears. And essentially what James is doing in this verse is telling us what it looks like to be ready to receive. Being ready to receive should flow into being a doer of the word. When you come meekly to the word and humbly and say, I need this instruction, then you will be a doer of the word. But if you find yourself not acting on the word, then you're probably not coming with the right approach to it. You aren't really receiving the word with meekness. Now, this is a struggle for, for all of us. I was going to say most of us, but come on. I mean, this is, this is a struggle for all of us to find ourselves as doers of the word. We sit, we listen, right? You guys are great listeners. We listen, we study, we read the scriptures, we take in information. This is something that we've been trained to do, and it's a good thing. I love being a part of a church where the Bible is the centerpiece, where we want to know what the scriptures teach. But far too often in my life, and probably in your life too, it doesn't lead to action. We become professional students of the word. And it doesn't flow over into aggressively implementing what we're learning from the Bible in our lives. Why? Why is this so difficult? Maybe we're just lazy. I mean, that could be some of it. I think that's probably true of me in many instances. But oftentimes, I think there's probably certainly other things at play, but maybe one thing in particular for us that we struggle with. So we know that the Bible condemns works righteousness, right? I mean, that's very clear. And that's at the heart of what we teach and believe as a church. We don't want to be legalists. It's like almost no word is worse than a legalist. We don't want to be moralists, right? We don't want to make Christianity all about a set of rules that you have to obey or you can't get to heaven. We don't even want to hint at that. We don't want to slip into any sort of mentality where you have to earn your salvation. And so we try to stay far away from that. But because we're weak and because we're broken human beings, we are so prone to overcorrection. And I think that sometimes that's what happens here. We're so scared of being legalists that we often ignore how often and how clearly the scriptures tell us that a failure to act 
a failure to do is really a failure to truly believe what the Bible teaches. You haven't really accepted it by faith until you act on it. And I think what James is doing here is he's working to bring us back into balance. The Bible's quite clear. Justification, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Bible's quite clear that you and I do not possess a righteousness that is inherent within us. And we do not contribute at all to our salvation. We don't bring anything to the table. But the grace of God, the unmerited gift of our salvation, is not opposed to effort on our part to pursue holiness and righteousness. I'll say it this way. Grace motivates holiness. Grace motivates holiness. It's amazing how often Jesus teaches on this very thing. I want to read you two passages from the teaching of Jesus to help you see how vital this is in our, in our lives as believers. All of you have heard the, the parable of the four types of soil, right? The thorny soil, the hard soil, right? And the sower goes out and he sows the seed into those four types of soil. And three of those types of soil don't produce any fruit. They don't, they don't grow up, but one does. And it's the good soil. And listen to what Jesus says differentiates the good soil from the other three types of soil. Mark 4 and verse 20. You can just listen. I'll read it. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. In fact, if you go back and read that parable again, which I'd encourage you to do this afternoon, Mark 4, 1 through 20, you'll see that each of the other three types of soil do hear the word. They hear it, but they don't act on it. And so what's the difference in the good soil? The good soil produces fruit because the one who hears the word goes out and acts on it, accepts it and acts on it. You can hear the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just spent all of this time explaining what life in the kingdom looks like, teaching us how to be his disciples in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And you get to the end and Jesus is summing the whole thing up. And he gives that parable about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. There's even kids' songs about this, right? And we're so used to thinking that the wise man, what that means is that he has built his house on Jesus. And the foolish man has built his house on something else. But that's not what the parable says. Jesus is not the rock in that parable. In fact, let me read you the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, did you hear that? And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I mean, Jesus couldn't be any clearer at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, if you read this sermon, if you have heard this sermon, and you've listened intently and made notes and studied it, but you don't act on what you hear, then you're foolish. You've built your house on the sand. Both hear the word, but only one acts on what he hears. Now, I think those of us who hear the word of God regularly, all of us here, we are at a particular high, particularly high risk of being merely hearers of the word. And we're at a high risk of deceiving ourselves. Why would I say that? Because we're constantly hearing the word. We are in close proximity to the Bible. You and I can discuss the principles of the Bible. We memorize verses. We come to church. We listen to sermons on our own, on YouTube and Christian podcasts. And we're constantly in contact with the teaching of Scripture. And it's tempting to think that hearing is enough that we have done our duty when we have listened to the word of God. And we can sort of check that off and move on. And it's tempting to think that familiarity with the word is enough and that we are growing in holiness just by listening. But that's not the case. And James illustrates how that's not the case in verses 23 to 25. Look there with me. It's a great illustration, right? Verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I mean, it's pretty simple, pretty clear, right? You look in the mirror to see what you are like. You see who you really are. All the warts and the wrinkles and the aging marks and the graying hairs that I'm getting, unfortunately, seems at a quicker pace these days. But you see your real face, your natural face. You see who you really are. And what James is saying is when you look into the Bible, you see who you really are. The Bible exposes you to yourself, to your eyes. You discover your need for a savior. You see your sin, the filthiness that is residing in your heart. But the one who only hears the word is like someone who looks in a mirror and sees who he is and then walks away. And what does he do when he walks away? Verse 24, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. That's the key here. He doesn't remember what he saw. He forgets what he saw. He doesn't think about it anymore. But notice the difference in the one who's a doer in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The difference here is he doesn't forget, right? He perseveres. He continues to remember what he sees. And because he continues to remember, he acts on it. And he works out the scriptures in his life. 
And I think some of his action is probably motivated by the way he perceives the word of God, what he thinks he's looking into. Look how James describes it here. He uses two different descriptions, the perfect law and the law of liberty. The Bible is the perfect law. This is the same word that we saw back in verse 4 that talks about our maturity, our completeness, our wholeness as believers. It's the same word in verse 17. Every perfect gift, every gift that grows us in Christ likeness, that makes us whole, more like Jesus. So the word of God is the perfect law. It's the law that grows us to maturity, that changes us. But James also calls the Bible here the law of liberty. I love that description of the scriptures here. And I think this is so important to how we perceive God's word. And when we perceive it as the law of liberty, I think it will motivate us more to act on what we hear from the word. The law of liberty. That word liberty or freedom is being used a lot in our country. But it's being used in all the wrong ways. And I think sometimes as a church, our understanding of freedom or liberty has been skewed by the culture around us. And so we have a hard time understanding what the scriptures teach about true freedom. You don't even have to do any work to pick up the wrong understanding of liberty in our culture. Our culture defines liberty as the absence of restraint. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Our culture defines it as the ability to do whatever I want to do anytime I want to do it. But instead, biblically speaking, true freedom, true liberty is the ability to become the type of person you were designed to be. You're not constrained by your sinful desires. They do not enslave you anymore, and you are free to grow into who you were designed to be. True freedom is freedom from sinful vices and corrupt desires. Our culture thinks that true freedom is the expression of corrupt desires. There's no restraint on whatever I want to do or be. But biblically speaking, true freedom, the law of liberty, is that the Bible shows us who we were designed to be, and it guides us and instructs us to grow in holiness, to who God made us to be. And that's the promise at the end of verse 25. Look there. He's no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. It's the same word that is used all the way back in, uh, I can't remember which verse it is, but it's already been used in this chapter. Blessed, the idea there is is flourishing, well-being in this life, and certainly hope in the next life. But you will be blessed, you will live well and wise when you act on what you hear. So those two categories are quite clear, right? James lays it out for us. There's a doer of the word, and then there is a hearer only. The hearer only forgets what he sees in the mirror of God's word. But the doer acts on what he sees. He perseveres in it because he knows that the word of God is making him holy 
and growing him into true freedom, which is who he was designed to be and how he was designed to live. Now, I hope as you're reading that and see that illustration, that your heart is drawn toward the doer. That's the goal here. I want to be a doer of the word. I want to be someone who acts on what I, what I read. I don't want to be deceived. And that's the warning James gives in verse 22. If you hear and don't do, you are deceiving yourselves. You are tricked into thinking you're growing, but you're not really changing and growing. Now, maybe this is a little bit abstract. You're like, okay, well, it would be really great if James would sort of lay out some examples of what it looks like to be a doer of the word and some concrete areas where I could change in my life. Good news. Verses 26 and 27 are coming up, and that's exactly what he does here. He gives us three illustrations of what it means to be a doer of the word. These are not exhaustive. This is not everything that you need to do to obey God's word. But these are three major categories that we should be seeing growth and change in our lives. Look at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Three categories there. And I want to walk you through each of those three and show you how these are examples of us being a doer of the word. The first one is in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious. Now, a lot of times we hear that word religion in a negative sense. And to be fair, the Bible does not use that word often to describe our Christian faith. You know, sometimes you'll hear people say, I, I don't want to, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus. And I understand why people say that they're concerned about a sort of dead formalism and ritual that doesn't have any motivation or heart desire behind it. But that's not what James, that's not the way James is using this word religion here. What he's saying here is if you claim to have had a genuine religious experience, if you are claiming to be a follower of Christ, to be worshiping God, and you do not act in these three areas, then you are deceived. You have tricked yourself. Your religion, your worship is not real. It's not genuine. And the first one of these is something we've already seen James go after. And he'll go after it again in chapter 3 at length. It must be important in our lives. He's talking about our speech. He says that if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle or control, I mean, it's a clear enough image, right? You put a bridle in a horse's mouth or a bit in a horse's mouth and you control the horse with the bridle. If you can't control your tongue, then you have deceived your heart or you've deceived yourself. And that's because your speech comes from inside of you. You don't say anything that's not already in there, percolating around in your heart. If we can't control our speech, then we can't claim to be genuine followers of Christ. In fact, James would say, if you can't control your speech, then your profession, your religion is worthless. 
the end of verse 26, this person's religion is worthless. Now that word worthless is interesting because that is used throughout the New Testament to talk about the vain worship of idols. How insane is it to approach a statue made out of stone and to bow down to that statue and think that something is going to be accomplished in that. That is a worthless use of your time and energy. And James is saying here that when you cannot control your tongue, then your religious experience is no better than someone who bows down to a statue. It is worthless. It's of no use at all. It's no better than those who worship idols in temples. The second illustration is in verse 27. Look there. Religion that is pure and undefiled, that is whole, that is complete. Right? Our series title is Wisdom for Wholeness. It's maturity in the faith. So religion, religious experience, worship of God that is whole, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The point here is that true faith in Christ expresses itself in acts of mercy, a pursuit of justice, for those who are marginalized in society and those who are in need. When you read the words widows and orphans, sometimes it's hard for us in our 21st century society to think about how difficult it was for a widow or an orphan during this time. But they were in a dire situation. Women were rarely, if ever, able to work to provide for their families. And so when you lost your husband, the primary breadwinner, there was no social safety net for you. There was no welfare check. You were, you were out on your own. You were responsible. And you had no one that could earn any money for you to eat. And orphans were in just as bad a situation, if not worse. And if you read the Old Testament, over and over again, God has a heart for this type of person, for widows, for orphans, for those who are marginalized and are on the outside. Listen to Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. This is God's indictment on the nation of Israel. This is why they were going to go into exile. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So much of the prophets is direct, are directed toward Israel and their failure to care for the marginalized and the needy among them. And that's exactly why James calls God not just God here. I mean, look what he says. Look how he describes Yahweh. 
Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. He's exactly who the widows and the orphans need. He's the Father. He has always cared for those who are on the outside, and he continues to do that. And that is why caring for folks like this, orphans and widows and others, proves the reality of our faith, that we are the children of God. Because God gives us grace and mercy that we cannot repay and that we do not deserve. And it is God-like for you and I to serve the poor, to reach out to widows and orphans, because God had grace and mercy on us. And we show the reality of our religion, of our faith, when we act like God in this way. Now, I understand there there are sometimes, I think, well-meaning concerns from Christians that if we start as believers actively caring for the poor, the marginalized, and we want to meet physical needs that will sort of slip into, you know, the social gospel and stop proclaiming the true gospel. But I think if James heard that concern, he would say, well, of course we want to continue to proclaim the true gospel. And here's the reality of the situation. When the true gospel has impacted you at the deepest level, like we saw in verse 18, that we're born again of the word of truth when God brings us to new life and when we receive the word in meekness and when we become doers of the word, then one of those areas that we will grow in is showing mercy to the poor and the marginalized and those in need. I don't think James could be any more clear here. There's a third illustration that he gives. Look in verse 27. And, the end of verse 27, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, pure religion doesn't only consist in social action for widows and orphans that shows mercy to the poor and needy. That's a part of it, but that's not it. That's not the complete sum total of it. We are doers of the word when we actively keep ourselves from the world. Now, what what does he mean by the world here? The world is described in scripture as the system that results from humans who are in rebellion against God, who are opposed to God. And when those humans come together and live out their sinful desires together, right? It's like, I've described it before as corporate self-centeredness. We're all self-centered, we're all arrogant, and we come together and we create these systems that help to promote self-centeredness and allow us to live in that way. So it's crazy, but what happens with the world is it creates a feedback loop. And so sinful desires from individuals are codified into laws and they're codified into patterns of living. And then those patterns of living and those cultural habits work back into individual lives and foster more sinful desires. And then those sinful desires create a system that is more and more codified. And then it works back on individuals and it's a feedback loop. That's the world. That's what happens. In 1 John chapter 2, we find that the essence of worldliness is to be found in what our hearts love. 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's, here's what the world is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's that system of passions and desires. So you're worldly when you love what the world system loves, when you are at home in the world system. And so James says here that to be a doer of the word, to obey the scriptures, we must actively reject the values, the presuppositions, the affections, the goals, the behaviors, and the loves of the world system. Three illustrations there. Interestingly, these three illustrations in verses 26 and 27 impact our speech, our actions, and our desires. We act in all of those areas, our speech, what we say, our actions of mercy and love toward others, our kindness, and then our desires, what, we, what our hearts are drawn to. And if we can learn to act in those three areas, then we'll be doers of the word. So here's the bottom line for this whole passage, verses 19 to 27. You and I, because we're born new by the word of truth, by God's own will, verse 18, we must be ready to receive that word, that implanted word. And we have to be ready to receive it in meekness. But it's not enough to listen. We have to be eager and aggressive to act on what we hear. The hearing is not complete without the acting. Now, the glorious truth of all of this, in, in case you're feeling overwhelmed this morning and thinking, oh my goodness, I can never live up to that. That's right. None of us ever can. But here's the glorious truth. It's back in verse 21. We receive with meekness the implanted word. By God's grace, and because you're a partaker of the new covenant, your sins have been forgiven, completely wiped out. The word has been implanted in you, and now the spirit of God is at work in you. And by God's grace, you and I will grow, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. And we will grow to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who are deceiving our own selves. And that's what God plans to do in our lives as we sit under the word and as we aggressively implement what we hear day after day. Let's pray. Father, we want to be doers of your word. We don't want to be professional sermon tasters who come and analyze and study and listen but are never driven to action. Give us the grace that we need, Lord. Oh, we need grace. We don't have the motivation. We don't have the power in our own ability. We can't obey consistently on our own, but by your spirit, and even by the very motivation provided by looking at this passage of scripture, we can walk out and we can obey your word. And when we fail, Lord, help us to obey your word and go right back to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess our sins 
and understand that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of what you have done, Lord Jesus, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that we can walk in action and holiness as your word describes. So we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your work in us. It's in Christ's name we pray.